right, let's turn again to 1 Thessalonians. Have you wondered whether or not you're saved? Have you ever struggled with doubts about your relationship to the Lord? Maybe, uh, hang on a second. We got to do this separate. Okay. Is that better? Okay. Maybe you once committed a sin so terrible that the devil whispered in your mind, how could you do something like that and really be a Christian? Or maybe you've wondered if the Bible is really true. Is it something I can put my trust in? Maybe you've just worried about living up to all the standards of God in his holy word, knowing that you seldom fall short of what he expects. Well, many Christians of the past have struggled with these issues as well. One of them was William Cooper. Cooper was a founder of the English Romantic movement in the 18th century, a very well-known poet of the day, but he was a melancholy man, and he struggled much with the issue of assurance. Before he became saved, he once became so worked up over an examination for a government post that he actually had to go to an asylum. He also attempted to take his life on three different occasions. But eventually, uh, he was released, and he moved to the town of Olney, where he met John Newton and came to know the Lord. But even then, he still had bouts of depression and doubts about his uh, salvation. Near the end of his life, he even had a dream that he was not among God's elect and he would be destined for damnation. Yet, he colluded with Newton in his only hymn, hymn book, and he wrote 68 of those hymns. Among them were, Oh, for a closer walk with God, and there is a fountain filled with blood. So how does one know if they are among the elect? Well, the first chapter of Thessalonians gives us an answer. The Apostle Paul thanks God for this church, remembering their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope in Christ. And then he goes on to thank the Lord, knowing their election by God. Do you wonder how Paul knew that? What evidence did he have for this knowledge? Well, let's take a look today in the rest of chapter 1. And it's all having to do with what you believe and how you show what you believe in your life. And may our study bolster our faith in our election and assurance of our salvation this morning. Heavenly Father, once again, we are thankful that the Word of God teaches us about what election is. Lord, we know that before a time back in eternity, uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit devised the plan of salvation and made sure that there would be many, many millions 
who came into the kingdom of God despite the fact they cannot seek God and uh, they cannot find God without your help. And Lord, today, most of us have made a profession of faith in Christ, yet sometimes we may struggle if that is true or real. And we pray, Lord, this morning as we look at these uh, this evidence of, sal- of salvation, evidence of election, that you'll just uh, help us to be thankful for your calling us into your kingdom and to be assured of it, even in those times when we might fail you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, uh, last time we observed Paul's thankful remembrance of Christian virtues from uh, verses two and three in chapter one. Then we also saw his thankful remembrance of God's election in verses 4 and 5. Today we're going to add a third point, and that's evidence of your election from verses 6 through 10. So let's take a look at this. I think we all know that evidence is testimony or proof given to establish some truth or fact. What evidence of election does Paul give in these verses? Well, really, we could go back to verses 2 and 3 as evidence of our salvation, where he observed uh, the patience of faith and love and, and uh, hope in the lives of uh, the Thessalonian believers. This was a demonstration of the truth that Christ had really saved them. Now, there are four more proofs as we go on. Uh, in the story here, uh, beginning uh, verse 6. And the first thing that we're going to look at is the elect imitate the Christian example of others. So the Thessalonian believers were told in verse 6, became followers of us and the Lord. So that's showing us that those who were saved Uh, began to mimic or imitate people that already were saved. Now, this English, uh, uh, our English word mimic comes from the Greek term that's used here. And to mimic means to imitate. Sometimes we can do that in a negative way, but here obviously it's positive. So this is more than just becoming an adherent uh, or or a follower of some kind of teaching or philosophy, you become so involved that you follow the person who is giving you the teaching. That person is a pattern to you of what they're uh, teaching and preaching. Now, the Thessalonians became followers, which indicates a definite change that resulted in their imitating Paul's team and the Lord. They once were pagan idolaters, but they became faithful followers of the gospel of Christ. Now, what's interesting here when Paul writes this is he mentions first followers of us and then of the Lord. And we might think that's a little bit peculiar, but when we think about it, isn't that the way it would be? If someone who had no previous knowledge of the Lord Jesus, no previous knowledge of any kind of Christian teaching, would they not, uh, first of all, be exposed to the life of the minister who gave them the gospel, and they would follow that person as they preached and taught what God uh, wants and how he wants you to live, 
and if he's living that in his own life. And further, uh, and, and uh, so uh, as they understand more about the Lord and the teaching of his word, then gradually they will begin to follow the Lord himself and begin to imitate him as the ultimate example we are to follow. So this suggests that Paul's team was teaching them about the life of Jesus as well as the salvation that he provided, and they were living it before those uh, believers. Now, furthermore, they became followers having received the word in much affliction. As he goes on to say here in verse 6. All right, so what's he talking about there? Well, uh, to receive, this verb means to welcome. And it's used of welcoming uh, a guest, giving them a warm welcome, much like you might welcome relatives coming to visit you or, or someone who stops by your house and you want to be kind. Uh, so this means that the missionary team, when they came to the city of uh, Thessalonica, that the people greeted them, these people listened to what they had to say, they welcomed them, and they received the Lord Jesus as their Savior. But remember that there was suffering involved in this, especially for the apostle and his team. So one evidence that their faith was genuine is that they believed in circumstances of affliction. And that particular word alludes alludes a very severe pressure. It's used elsewhere to describe the pressing of grapes until they burst. And we know that Paul had to leave the city sooner than he wanted to because of the pressure the Jews who did not believe were putting upon them. And that pressure would not have ceased because he left the city. It would then be turned to believers or potential believers in the city of Thessalonica. And yet they continued in the faith. And I would assume that more came to know the Lord Jesus, even though they saw what might happen to them when they did so. They would face hardship. They would face rejection. In many cases, their families would turn against them, whether they were from pagan or Jewish backgrounds. Their friends would not want to be friends anymore. Their employers might fire them. So this is kind of an ongoing situation there. But to come to faith in Christ and to continue faith in Christ in the midst of this kind of situation is, again, great evidence that your election is sure. And then to demonstrate joy in such times is further proof of their election, as he says, with joy of the Holy Spirit. So uh, they come, they follow the apostles, they follow the Lord, they do so in much affliction, and in that affliction they still express their joy in being saved. Now we know joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, Uh, He comes and resides within the believer. So it develops not from our grit or our determination to be joyful. It comes from the Lord. And few people suffer uh, affliction or persecution of this kind with this type of an attitude. Our tendency is to gripe, to complain, 
uh, to wish the pressure would stop, to pray that the Lord will take it away. But to these believers, the truth of salvation and its results paled in comparison to the difficulties they were facing. It was worth it all to them. Edmund Hebert wrote this, this combination of affliction and spiritual joy, this original paradoxical experience is the token of election. It shows that you really are a believer. But he also noted this, perhaps our Christian lives are so lacking in this joy because our Christian profession costs so little. And that might be true of our country today. So who then do you follow? Do you follow politicians? Do you uh, follow sports figures? Do you follow the most recent movie star or music star, uh, conservative pundits? Or do you follow God's people who are examples of Christ-like behavior to you? Who, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> who you follow is an indication of your election or your lack of it. Now let's go on to the next point that he brings out here in verse 7. So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. So secondly, the elect become a pattern to other believers. Now they, they follow the pattern other believers uh, show them, but then they grow to the point where they became, become a pattern for others to follow as well. All right, so uh, this is a high commendation by the Apostle Paul because he does not say this of any other church that he mentions or writes to. So the Thessalonians kind of stuck out uh, from other churches. Now the word example here originally described the impression left by a blow. Uh, such as the mark left by a hammer when you miss the head of a nail. It, uh, it, it leaves an impression in the wood. Then it was used of the imprint stamped on an object, such as a coin, and from this developed the idea of a pattern, and in Scripture, when it's used, is talking about a moral pattern of life that people ought to follow. So this church followed the apostles followed Christ so closely, it became a pattern for other believers to follow, uh, other churches to follow in this greater region. <clears throat> so this also means that this pattern extended far beyond the boundaries of the city. He mentions Macedonia and Achaia. So this would have been just about the whole area of ancient Greece, and people were hearing about it all over the place. Paul mentions later in verse 8, it went even farther as he says, in every place. Now that might be a bit of hyperbole, but Paul meant that everywhere he preached the gospel, since being with the church at Thessalonica, they had heard about what's going on there in that church already. We'll see that again a little bit later. How then was this example or pattern to others displayed? Well, Paul mentions two ways here as we come to verse 8. For from you 
the word of the Lord has sounded forth. So by sounding forth the word of the Lord, they became a pattern to other believers to do the same thing. So that suggests evangelism. Now, it's not really clear whether they actually sent missionaries out uh, into these other regions or simply that the testimony of what was happening in Thessalonica was making its way to these other regions without even missionaries going. Now, you'll remember that this city was in a strategic place historically, which would make it uh, easy for the word of God to be uh, spread here and even farther away in uh, other countries. The The Ignatian trade route went from Rome to the east in the past right through Thessalonica. So traders uh, may have heard something about it. Maybe that some of them got saved and they're telling other people all this strange stuff going on in Thessalonica. Uh, other merchantmen could have come and gone by way of the sea because it was a port city. So uh, what's happening there is really kind of turning the world upside down. We derive our word echo from the verb to sound forth, and it alludes to the resounding reverberation of a loud noise, such as a trumpet blast, or uh, some use thunder as an example, rolling through the hills. The word of the Lord, evidenced by their joyous reception of the gospel, was echoing loud and clear from this ancient city. People were hearing about it everywhere. So God's elect let other people know they are saved. They impact others with the gospel of Christ by sounding forth the word of the Lord. Now, the second thing here is uh, in the last part of verse 8, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, wherever it goes out. And then he says, your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. So uh, here we have others witnessing of their faith. They're getting the word of God out, but others are witnessing the growth of their faith. They're seeing this develop in their life. So the faith of the Thessalonians has been a part of the dissemination then of the gospel. It's their faith in God that is noteworthy uh, to these people who live in a polytheistic world system. Wherever you go, there's going to be this worship of pagan gods. One commentator put it this way, in government, religion, business, amusement, labor, and social clubs, the pagan world was built on the pattern of polytheism. So that faith in God was to reject that whole system that the world was caught under, and it went against the culture of the day no matter where you lived, except perhaps maybe in uh, Judea. And there were other problems there that were just as idolatrous. Our modern world is patterned on humanism. The attitude that we don't need God, we just need enough government, education, politics, 
ingenuity, technology, whatever, and we can fix our own problems. Uh, Our God today is self and self-sufficiency, and that reigns just as much now as it did as polytheism did in ancient societies. And even some places today are still caught up in a polytheistic religious background. Paul states that the evidence of their faith in God, one God, had spread so much that Paul didn't need to boast about them in these places he came to. Their testimony had already preceded them. So this, again, is a great testimony to the believers in this city. If you're among the elect, you're going to evidence your trust in God in such a way it leaves no doubt in the mind of other people that you are saved. You're going to see, uh, 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 other people are going to see a changed lifestyle, a different way of thinking that's controlled by God that is a pattern for others to follow. Now, this is further evidenced when we come to verse 9. And here we see the the third thing. The elect turn from their former lifestyle to serve the living and true God. Now, Paul, again, is referring to what these people are hearing and declaring. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. So there again, they're going back to the reception of the gospel when this team came into their city. Uh, Believers in the other places were telling Paul about the way his missionary team was received by the believers there in Thessalonica. And again, this shows that the word of God was impacting their lives. I sometimes wonder if the word preached here is doing that. Is it impacting our lives? Is it bringing about any changes? Well, it certainly was among the Thessalonians. Now, another aspect of these reports concerned the change in their lifestyle and their belief system. Again, going back to the evidence of their faith. So what did they do? What does Paul mention here? Well, they turned to God from idols. The verb to turn indicates repentance. Making a 90 degree uh, turnaround in your life. Uh, Instead of going this way, you get saved and you turn around and start going in the opposite direction. Uh, as, As we mentioned earlier, every aspect of Thessalonian life was related to false gods, false worship. It was a, uh, 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 to be saved would be a a rejection of these things, but to be under the control of them would be a rejection of God's revelation of himself and his word. Turning from this indicates a definite choice to break away from false belief and sinful lifestyles. Another author wrote, becoming a Christian involves a very definite break with non-Christian habits. Whatever the believer's previous background, there must always be a turning from idols of some sort. The act of conversion is 
involves a change in direction of the will. This is what happened at Thessalonica. You know, folks, modern society is really not all that different from ancient society. Um, Our affections, our lifestyles are similar. For instance, the sexual revolution of our age has focused on sensuality, much like the worship of the Greek goddess of love, Aphrodite. What people did in the name of Aphrodite is pretty much the same as what they're doing in the name of sensuality today. There's really not a whole lot of difference. We just don't uh, have a, 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 a god in a religious sense that's controlling these kind of things. So the gamut runs everywhere from premarital sex to adultery to the LGBTQ plus agenda to gender confusion, to same-sex marriage. Who knows what the next sinful aberration will be, but it all comes down to the same thing. We worship self. We worship feelings. We worship uh, pleasure, and we discard the will of God for those things. So this is just one example of what one turns away from when they become a Christian. So the elect turn away from worldly ideologies, lifestyles, trends, and people that defy the holiness of God, which is supposed to be reflected in believers. Instead, what do they do? They begin to serve the living and true God. Total change in thinking and lifestyle. Now, as you go here, in verse 9, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The verb to serve there means to serve as a slave. So that indicates the total commitment of the believer to his or her new master, who is now God, not the false isms of the world in which they live. And the God of the Bible is living He is active. He is powerful, unlike the false gods of whatever age you might be living in. He's the true God. So that underscores that he is real, he is genuine, and he's the only unique God. Anything else is false, whether it's a pagan God that you might worship or the worship of self, whatever it is, that is a false way of believing and living. So the elect of God, the true believer, turns his or her back on the sinful lifestyle they once lived or could have lived and serve with fervor the true God who has saved them from that sinful lifestyle. Now the final thing that Paul mentions here is the the forward view, the forward look. And in verse 10, we see that the elect eagerly anticipate Christ's return and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. All right, so the Thessalonian church is 
following the example of believers God had put in their path, as a result, they are becoming pattern believers for others to follow. They have uh, left behind the old life and the old lifestyle, and they're becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ, putting on uh, the things of the Spirit. And now they are looking forward to the Lord's return. Now, this is the only time Paul uses this particular verb to wait in this context. And this word means to wait for someone's expected return with a sense of patience and trust. And it also uh, conveys the idea of of, uh, expectancy and eagerness, waiting for uh, this person to uh, return. Uh, We could perhaps put it in a modern-day context of uh, an engaged couple uh, waiting for the day of their marriage and how they anticipate that with eagerness and really uh, can't wait for it to come. Same idea here. Now, Paul says uh, to wait for his son, meaning God's son from heaven. We know, of course, Jesus was raised from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of God, and currently he sits in that place of authority, uh, uh, interceding for his saints, hearing the prayers of those who call upon him for salvation, hearing our prayers for whatever we need. So he's in that position now, but he's not going to stay there forever. There's a day coming when he will return to the earth. So the idea that he's there, that he's been raised, that is a central pillar of the Christian faith. Jesus died, but he rose again to testify, uh, satisfy God's wrath against sin and provide our eternal salvation. If he had not been raised from the dead, he couldn't have gone back to heaven, and obviously he could never return. Uh, this would be a false hope. But because he has been raised, we now are in a place where we patiently wait for his return. Now, in connection with this coming, we're reminded of something else, that Jesus is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, the verb to deliver here means to rescue or to save. And it's in a... um, a structure here, grammatical structure, that's almost like being a title of Jesus. He is our deliverer. He is the rescuer. And he assures that we do not have to fear the wrath to come. Uh, We don't have to fear God's wrath over our sin. His wrath is coming into the world by way of judgment because we've been saved. Now, what does Paul mean then when he speaks of the wrath to come? Now, there's divided opinions, as often there is when we find phrases like this. And so it may be a general reference to the wrath of God against sin. Both Testaments are very clear that people will not get away with their sin, that they're under God's wrath, under his condemnation, even right now. If they don't get saved, then they're going to experience that when they die or when the Lord comes. Um, We know that uh, in both Testaments uh, that the Lord is coming again. This is a 
tenet of the Christian faith. We believe in the second coming. There's a lot of different uh, views of how that's going to take place, but that's what you need to believe. The Bible is very clear. Jesus is coming again, and when he comes this time, it's going to be for judgment. So it could be this general idea of his coming into the world uh, to take control, to judge his enemies. Now, uh, the Bible mentions this, that he's going to come back. He's going to, uh, uh, he's going to imprison Satan. He, uh, at the end of all time, he's going to uh, have the great white throne of judgment. So these are uh, specific, but also it's that general idea that God judges sinfulness. There's another view, however, that some believe this alludes to, and that's the specific period of time where God will judge the earth prior to Christ's second coming. We call this the tribulation period. And this uh, period is one marked by God's wrath upon unrepentant sinners in the world. It's coming upon the world the wrath to come in that sense. Now, if we were just to read this, and this is the only mention of it, we might take it in this general sense rather than a specific sense. But Paul actually alludes to this at the end of every chapter, and then he goes into further detail, the last uh, half of chapter 4 and also chapter 5, which seems to indicate uh, to us that this is alluding to that period um, of, of wrath that is coming upon the world before Christ enters it in, in uh, the future. And uh, then he will, of course, deliver us from that wrath through the rapture. <clears throat> so the elect entertain the hope of Christ delivering them from all kinds of wrath, Wrath against our sin, wrath coming into the world, uh, the wrath of the great white throne. We don't have to worry about that because we're trusting Christ who's cleansed us from sin and we no longer are under the wrath of God. So to wrap these things up this morning, let's uh, think about a few things here. If you're trusting Jesus as your Savior alone, then you are among the elect. And you are assured of this as you begin to develop in your life the things that Paul has written here. If all these things are absent from your life, then maybe your profession or your thinking isn't really uh, showing uh, a genuine trust in Christ or salvation. So let's just review these quickly. First of all, are you experiencing and displaying in your life faith, love, and hope. These are aspects of your walk with God. And if those things aren't present, well, how can you say you're elect? But if they are present, no matter um, uh, how greatly apparent they are, those things being present show you actually do believe. And you should be growing in every one of those areas. Secondly, are you following the example of other Christians God has put in your path? Uh, begins with your family, with your parents, if you're raised in a Christian home. 
uh, Christian leaders, Christian friends, missionaries, other people that you might read about in uh, biographies and things of that nature. But there are many believers who present an example to us that we ought to be following, and they will help us to grow in our walk with the Lord. And as time goes by, then you become a pattern that others can follow, that your example is such that you can help other Christians to grow, and you can let others know that you're a Christian, that you're saved, and they can see that your faith is growing, so uh, they have a good example to follow in your life. And of course, Paul writes that we certainly ought to be an example of pattern for others to follow. And he spoke that of himself as well. And finally, uh, well, have you turned from a sinful, godless lifestyle to serve the Lord? Are you endeavoring to separate from those things that once controlled you? Or if you grew up in a Christian home, uh, you were fortunate enough not to have examples of that nature, but you have to resist the temptation to think that you're saved because you're in that kind of an environment, and you have the temptation to desire to experience the wrong kind of lifestyle and reject what you know to be true. So there's your faith operating in those situations as well. You don't want to go into a godless lifestyle that you've been able to avoid because of your family upbringing. And finally, are you eagerly awaiting for the return of Christ? Is there something more important for you to achieve or accomplish before he comes? Are you thankful that he saved you from the wrath of God that's present in the world, that's going to come into the world, that's going to be the uh, means of judging those who are lost? God saved you from that, and you don't have to fear it. So you may not perfectly manifest these characteristics, but you will desire them and you will want them to control your life. If that's where you stand and how you endeavor to be in your relationship with the Lord, you don't have to worry about being the elect. You're showing that you are. And let's thank the Lord for that. Heavenly Father, again, we're thankful today that... um, Through the Lord Jesus Christ and our faith in him, we are saved, we are of the elect. And Lord, we show that by these evidences that we've looked at today. We show it, Lord, by growing in faith and love and hope. We show it, Lord, by following the example of others, by becoming a pattern that others can follow, by separating from an ungodly lifestyle to serve the living God and looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, you'll bless us with these thoughts today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, as we close this morning, uh, let's be reminded of Some of the things we just talked about from our blue hymnal, number 634, uh, fight the good fight. The Lord helps us in all these different ways.
Being saved doesn't mean life gets easier. It just means we have a Lord to depend on to help us through it. So let's stand together as we sing 634, Fight the Good Fight. <clears throat> Thank you. 
jokes from your side.